If you have a Bible, please open it to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. There's no doubt that as we, we walk through this world after we have been saved, before we have been resurrected, that we are sort of torn between the times. Paul has informed us that we are not of the era of the law and of the flesh. We've been redeemed from that. We have been redeemed from the present evil age in Galatians 1.4. Even so, we still await for the hope of righteousness in 5.5. Paul reminds us of that. We are saved from something so that we no longer belong to that something, but we are not yet saved. We are still awaiting more the fullness of our salvation. The question then becomes, how do we live in this sort of in-between time? Once we are fully saved and we are fully remade, there will be no need to fight for our holiness and righteousness. It will flow freely from who we are. And before we are saved, we cannot do that without the aid of the Spirit. So now that we are in between the times, how then are we to live? How can we live in the meantime? Last week we talked about how we aren't to give an opportunity to our flesh, as Paul instructs us in 5.13, that while we were called to freedom, we are not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But now he's going to kind of put meat on those bones and talk to us about how we are not to give opportunity to the flesh. What are we then supposed to do? Paul will instruct us here in 5.16 as we begin reading. Paul writes to the Galatians, But, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. May God bless this reading of his word. We are in between the times, so how ought we to live? What does it look like to live in Christian hope in a world that is filled with sin, even while sin inhabits us. The first thing that Paul would have us do is commence the fight. We are to commence the fight. Paul starts very clearly by saying we ought to walk by the Spirit. This statement has kind of, kind of always confused me. I always wanted to know what did it mean to walk by the Spirit. I wish Paul would give us instructions as to what that looks like. I, I, I think that some people just sort of think that that it's this mystical understanding that you just kind of let go and let God sort of lead you, that there's some sort of inner monologue in you that, that you need to follow, that once you're a Christian, you can just sort of close your eyes and think really hard and, and pray that the Spirit leads you, and then no matter what direction you go in, that's where he wants you to go. And that's what it means to walk by the Spirit. There were people who I knew who were Christian leaders of a youth group earlier in life that used to pray over even like the color of the toothbrush that they were supposed to buy because they wanted to be led by the Spirit. Now, as commendable as that is, I doubt highly that that's really what Paul's getting at here. 
I never really liked this sort of idea that it was mystical, that we're led by the Spirit somehow through our own conscience or, or even this sort of internal movement in ourselves. People can be confused by that quite easily. Mormons are heretics, full stop, and yet they will tell you very clearly that they have felt a burning inside of them. They, they have been led to this truth, which is no truth at all. Listen, let me be very clear. Whatever it means to be led by the Spirit, it cannot ever mean that you are simply led by your gut feelings, by, by your instincts, by the sort of in, inner monologue that goes on in your head. You are to fight. It's not about letting go and letting God and saying, whatever the Spirit leads me to do, that's, that's what I will do. That's exactly what Paul is warning you about here. When he says, listen, your flesh wants things that your Spirit that the Spirit of God doesn't want, and the Spirit of God wants things that their flesh doesn't want. That means in the meantime, in between the time when we have been saved and where we are going to be saved, there is a fight that goes on in us. We have the Spirit of God in us leading us one way and our flesh leading us the other way, which means there's just rampant confusion about, about everything. There's rampant confusion in our own heads about how we are to live. Listen, this is what people do. So many people so many people are led by their own inner monologue as though that is how the Spirit leads them. Books are published about this kind of stuff. Jesus Calling, Sarah Young, published a book, made, made millions of dollars telling people that what you're really supposed to do to get in good with the Spirit and Jesus and to build a relationship with God is to sit there with pen, close your eyes, and wait for him to speak to you. That is, that is deadly. That is deadly. Now, it's not bad to meditate on the things of God, and it's not bad to sit there and to, to give quiet time over to a meditation on what God has spoken to you in his word and to think through those things. But listen, your inner monologue is fraught with difficulties. Your gut instincts are 99% of the time going to be wrong. You are the George Costanza of the Christian world, and you ought not listen to those things. I've had people who have ruined 35 years of marriage showing up at their doorstep telling their wife that they are leaving her for another woman because she makes them happy and I'm pretty okay with this because I think that God's okay with it too. I said, brother, God is not okay with that. God is not okay with that. It is a huge mistake to think for a second that because you are a Christian, that being led by the Spirit is now your default position. That as long as you don't get in the way, as long as you don't screw it up, that you will just do the things of the Spirit. Paul says to them, it's an imperative, you need to go out and walk by the Spirit. There's something going on here. When he talks about your flesh and your spirit fighting against one another, he clearly indicates that you have to do something. You've got to work for it. You've got to fight for it. And listen, part of the difficulty of this is that tons of you, I know because I've talked to you, struggle with certain sins. They're, they're always present in you and you fight for them and you fight against them and you, you want to be done with them and God allows them to stay on you. And the, the problem is that you think, sometimes people think that these sins are just supposed to up and evaporate when Christ has saved you. And I've heard people tell me stories that I believe that, that they were alcoholics and, and they were drug addicted and God saved them and then immediately those desires were gone. They were gone. Can God do that? Amen, he can. He can free you immediately from drugs and alcohol, from pornography and sex. He can free you immediately from anger and bitterness. I just got done listening to the book about Louis Zamperini called Unbroken. It was made into a movie. And in that book, it talks about, at a Billy Graham crusade, his bitterness and anger towards his uh, Japanese captor. He was a, he was a um, POW 
they didn't call him a POW. He would have had rights had he been a POW, but they never called him that. And this man who hovered over him and beat him and tortured him day after day after day for years, and how angry he was at it, was removed in an instant from him at a Billy Graham crusade. Never, never harbored another ill thought toward the man. That can't happen. But those are, those are miraculous things that are not normal. God will oftentimes allow you to struggle with your sin. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. You are to fight for it. You are to fight for your holiness. God doesn't just remove this kind of stuff from you. And what's worse is thinking that he should or thinking that he does can lead you to believe that you don't need to fight or that you shouldn't have to fight. But friend, Paul is clearly telling you here, you have to fight. There is something going on that you have to fight for. The desires of the spirit and the flesh are against one another. The flesh will work, obviously, on sinful impulses. It doesn't trust in the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. It must supply them itself. Therefore, it can only look to itself. We talked about all of that last week, and Christ has given us all we need, and the Spirit is seeking to convince you of that. It's seeking to convince you to trust in Christ for everything. Paul says something in here that's really important, this little little phrase at the end, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's the purpose of it. The spirit works against the flesh for a reason. The spirit works against the flesh because it keeps you from doing the things the flesh wants you to do. The flesh wants to engage in sin. The flesh wants to be idolatrous. The flesh wants sexual immorality. The flesh wants dissension and disruption within the church. The flesh wants these things. It wants hubris. It wants pride. And the spirit comes and it convicts you against those things so that you can't do those things. But the flesh also works against the spirit. So the spirit tells you, You are to love your neighbor, but the flesh will convince you of their sinfulness, that they deserve the wrath that's coming upon them. They don't deserve your help. They are undeserving of your time and your money and your gifts. The Spirit comes and it tells you that you are to live a life of holiness, but the flesh will tell you it's just a small sin and God can't possibly care about it. And what's more is how much it pleases you to commit that sin. And and that anyways, Christ will just forgive you for it. Because that's his job. The flesh is evil and it's wicked and it's wily. We read about Eve. She looks at the apple or the fruit, probably a peach, and she says, it seems like it should be good. It seems like it should be good to to eat and it should be good to the taste and, and there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to take it. And reason and logic in the flesh can be used to disobey God for any of a number of reasons that seem all right to you. They seem good except for one thing. God said, you should not. So we can't rely on our own inner monologue. We can't rely on ourselves. And because we ourselves are all fallen, I can't rely on you and you can't rely on me. How do we know how to walk by the Spirit? How do we know the way in which we are to actually walk in this world? What is the actual mechanism that comes down to? How are we supposed to know that we're supposed to do this but not do this? Now certainly conscience plays a role, but frankly we are led by the Spirit by listening to the Spirit. If we are to walk with the Spirit, we ought to listen to his directions. That means we read the Word of God. We know the Word of God. This is breathed out by the Spirit. All Spirit is breathed out by God. It is inspirited, which isn't a word, but that's what it means. It is the Spirit of God who writes these words for you. You want to be led by the Spirit? Listen to what the Spirit says. You don't need to have some sort of mystical connection with God. Walk by what the Spirit says is true. Listen, you realize later in these verses, in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. 
To whom? To whom? If they're so evident to us, then why do we need them pointed out? If they are so evident to unbelievers, why does Paul need to point them out? They're evident in some way. It doesn't appear as though they're evident to us in our own personal beings. There wouldn't be a fight if that were the case. They're evident because Scripture very clearly calls these things sin. They're evident not because we believe that they're evident, not because we know in our own self that they're evident. They're evident because Scripture says, don't do this and do this. Don't do that, but do that. That's how they are evident. So we read the word. All scriptures breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, the person of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work to cast off the flesh and to trust yourself to Christ, to walk in the way that he wants you to do means that you are to listen to the very word of God that God himself has breathed out. Now, Spirit gives us the words, we are to listen to the Spirit, we are to walk in the Spirit, we are to do what the Spirit says, and we know that when Paul writes this, this being probably the earliest New Testament book written, one of them at the very least, he was likely referring to the Old Testament. Not even in his quote from 2 Timothy, which is quite clearly referring also to the Old Testament, And we would rightly apply that thing to the New Testament. We rightly think that the Spirit has written the book of Galatians for us. That's why we're spending time reading the book of Galatians and not the book of Leviticus this morning. But all the same, when Paul writes these things and he says you are to listen to the Spirit, he means you are to go back and you are to listen to the law. Listen. He's already talked about the whole law. Back up in verse 14, we talked about this last week. We read it last week. I didn't really talk about it. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. The question becomes, isn't this just a backdoor to legalism? Isn't this stretch for holiness to be walking by the Spirit according to the Word of God? If we're going to be going back into the Old Testament to be pulling moral imperatives out of the Old Testament, isn't that just a backdoor to legalism? Isn't that just a way to make ourselves right before God? Notice what Paul says in verse, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Doing what is right and good according to what the Spirit has written down doesn't make you under the law. It doesn't mean that you're trying to prove yourself righteous. Rather, our holiness is an outworking of the fact that the Spirit is in us, convicting us that these things are true, is an outworking of the gift of salvation that has already been given to us. It is no way, shape, or form trying to actually gain our salvation. And in this, there's a small thing. There's a difference between heaven and hell. There's a difference between justified and works righteousness. We seek to obey God not to gain our salvation, but because we have been saved. That's a minor thing, but it is major. You cannot be led by the Spirit of God if you ignore what he commands you to do. But you cannot, cannot be led by the Spirit of God if you think, if you think that doing what he commands makes you right with God. Because that's not the Spirit's leading. So commence the fight. If you are not led by the Spirit in the Word, you will be led by confusion in the world. Secondly, you need to crucify the flesh. Paul notes at the end of these verses in verse 24 that you've already done this. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
You have, you have turned from your sin and, and you realize in Christ that what has kept you from God, the life-giving, the life-loving God, the one who loves you and will pour out his own son for you that he might, he might kill him with his wrath, that he doesn't kill you with his wrath. All of the goodness of God that has separated you from God is taken away. All of the, the sinfulness of you is taken away through the work of the cross. When you believe that, when you have entrusted yourselves to that, when you belong to Christ Jesus, you have then said, my sin is what got me in this position in the first place. My sin has what has led me to be separated from God. And so because of that, because of that, I don't want that anymore. I want that sin dead. As John Owen has said, you either kill sin or it kills you. So you said, I want that dead. Your whole moment of conversion the whole purpose of conversion is for you to turn on your sin and to turn and to trust in Christ. So he says, you have already done this. Listen, this is, I remember when my son was young, I was holding him and my back was to glass doors that opened and, and shut the push bar sort of glass doors and he had reached out and he had stuck his hand by the hinge, right? And he was a, he was a boy, but it was dumb to do. He learned his lesson. And the door shut, and he just screamed, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you immediately take him back. His fingers weren't broken. Everything was okay. We put ice on him. He, he was fine. But listen, he, even as a young man, I don't think he was going to run back and put his hand by the hinge again. What caused him pain was putting his hand there, so he didn't do it again. If what caused you pain was your sin and separation from God, you run from it. You crucify it. Paul says, this is what you've done. Nevertheless, even though that has happened, sin is always there. Genesis 4, 7. Something that we will talk about tonight in our community groups. Abel gives a sacrifice to God. It is accepted. Cain gives a sacrifice to God. It is not accepted. God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is waiting there, crouching to attack you. I had a, a cat when I was in high school, a cat that I absolutely hated. And we had, at night, the, the bathroom, the one bathroom in my, my family's house, had an, a door that also went into my parents' room. And so if I went in there at night, I, I didn't turn on any of the lights or anything because I didn't want to wake them up. And we had back, if you stepped back a couple steps and turned around, there were doors that opened for the washer and dryer. And that cat used to jump up on the counter and then jump up on those doors when they were open. And if you were unlucky, when you washed your hands in the middle of the night, she would, she would hunch up there like some sort of feline gargoyle. And then she would jump down on your unsuspecting head, claws all over you, right? This is sin. Okay? That, that is the picture of sin. Sin is just waiting there for some unsuspecting person to come around so they can pounce on you, only it doesn't just scratch your head and your shoulders so you can punt it out into the living room, which may or may not have happened. But it will kill you. Crucify the flesh. It's always there. It's waiting, waiting for it. And this list of sins that he brings up, these are the things that we are to put to death we can basically break these down into three different groups. We're not going to go through every single one of them. The first three are clearly related to sex, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. They refer to anything that is sex outside of marriage. Not only the act of sex outside of marriage, but the actual defilement before God that ensues from it. 
Now, some of these things, and we can list a whole bunch of them, the world itself thinks are wrong. We can talk about pedophilia. We can talk about necrophilia. We can talk about bestiality. Those things are clearly wrong to the outside world. And even things like adultery, given the circumstances in which that adultery occurs, the world generally thinks that those things are wrong. But it also puts us at odds with our culture because quite clearly included in those things are things like the practice of homosexuality and sex outside of marriage, even between heterosexual people. These things are things to run from. Now, we clearly think out of all of these things, and I say clearly, and it might not be true for you, but I'm going to guess it's true for you. The one thing that's on the tip of your mind right now is homosexuality, but I'm going to push you to realize that the major problem for the vast majority of people in here is not homosexuality, but it is sex outside of marriage, and it is the problem of the church that now we're so concerned with homosexuality working its way into the church, I'm going to tell you something. The only time any church has ever, ever acquiesced on the issue of homosexuality, it has long ago punted on the issue of fornication in the church. And they might claim that it's wrong, but they are unwilling to hold their members accountable to it. It is wrong to have sex outside of marriage. It is a work of the flesh. It is not a work of the spirit. It is not a fruit of the spirit. It is a union of a man and a woman who have no, no desire to be unioned together. Only for an instant and then broken apart. It destroys the image of God. It makes God out to be an adulterer and a liar. It is, it is a work of the flesh. And when the church gives up on that, then and only then, Will homosexuality become an issue in the church? Paul says you cannot think for a second that such actions are okay. Listen, there, there is forgiveness for homosexuality. There is forgiveness for all sorts of sexual sins. There is forgiveness built into the Christian life. These are not the unpardonable sins, but you need to understand something. It is wholly unacceptable to pick out certain sins like homosexuality and to not hold people accountable for fornication that happens inside the church walls. Listen to what Paul says here. Listen to what he says. I warned you as I warned before that those who do such things will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are not holding people accountable, and let me back up. We're not even talking about church membership now. If you are giving anyone an assurance of salvation who is living a life like this, you are lying to them and you are paving the road to hell for them. They are not saved. Now, they might be misled and they might need to be corrected, but at no point in time should you ever think that they're saved. It doesn't matter if they're living homosexual lifestyle or if they are just shacking up with their friend. They are not saved, and they need to be warned about it. And giving them assurance because they've said something at some time or they've walked an aisle, it's just, you are killing them. But it is not just for those who are outside. It is for everyone who is inside. It's not just about having sex. Pornography is there. Lust is there. Every single sexual sin that, that wants you to act out or think through a sexual act outside of a union of a man and woman in marriage is wrong and evil. And if you do not repent of it, there is no inheritance for you. If you think that it's okay, you have given into the flesh and you are not led by the Spirit. 
The second grouping is idolatrous sins. There's idolatry is actually listed, but sorcery is there as well. Idolatry is nothing more than the degrading of the person of God. Listen to Isaiah 46. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Do you hear what the difference is there? He says, you make idols, and then you've got to put them on the back of a beast of burden, and that poor animal has to carry around your God. Think about me, Israel. I carried you. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Anytime you make an idol, anytime you, you, you degrade the image of God, you make him into something that he is not, you, you fashion him in your own image, you are naturally going to degrade him. You're naturally going to make him into something that he will never be and could never be. And we think we, we are much brighter than these folks because we know that God is not a little picture of a cow that's riding on a cow, which is really silly in and of itself, or the picture of some sort of stone god that somebody made or hewed out of wood and then poured gold over. Listen, we know that that's not the case, and we think that that's silly, and why would people ever think that those gods are there? But anytime, anytime you do this, you are making God in your own image, he is automatically going to be degraded. Idolatry is acted out in many ways. You can cast images from gold, but there are more subtle ways. George Tyrell, who was a scholar who was writing about gerbil, German, not gerbils, German, I actually don't know the man's full work, so maybe he was a gerbil scholar as well, but he, he was writing about German liberal Protestantism and how they, they shuffed off all of the supernatural elements of the New Testament. They, they didn't want them to be there, and what they ended up with was a gospel that was nothing but be socially good to other people. He wrote this, the Christ that they see looking back through the 19 centuries of Catholic darkness, is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. Listen, that is, that is the God of so many people. It's not German liberal Protestant people. That is, that is people in every church, Baptist, Presbyterian. That is possibly your God as well. You just look into a well and see what you want to see, which is most likely you. Listen, we want a God who forgives. So that's what we get. We get a God who forgives. But a holy God? Not so much. Some of us want a God who punishes sinners. So that's what we find. It's very easy to flip through the Bible and to read and to focus on passages where God's wrath is poured out. But one who forgives filthy, dirty sinners? That's not very attractive to them. We want a God who will grant us good things on earth, so that's what we find. But a God who desires to mold us through suffering? Tell it not in Gath. We, we can't handle something like that. God is supposed to man, mean things for our good, not to, to lead us through suffering. We want a God who thinks little of our sins and thinks much of our good deeds, but a God who thinks so little of our good deeds that he needs to kill his son to forgive us? No, no thanks. We don't want that. 
We want a God who will look and act like we want him to. But God isn't who we want him to be. God is who he is. That's why he means when he says, I am who I am. I, I am my own personal self. I, I, I don't change for you. I am immovable. I am unchangeable. This is good for you, but you need to understand that you can't just make me however you want me to be. I am who I am. Anything other than that is nothing but idolatry. Let it be far from you. Read scripture so that you will know who God is in his wrath, in his anger, in his mercy, and in his love. Know the God of scripture and you will know God. Know the God of your heart and you will know yourself. And you can't save yourself. Sorcery is the exact same thing. It does away with the image of God and solely wants his power. That's all it is. It's a tapping into some form of energy that floats around that you can get the results that you want from God without having to pray to a God. You just kind of tap into the sorcery and you tap into the power. There's nothing there for you. What is most amazing about this list is the listing of community sins that comes after this. Knowing how important sexual sins are to scripture, knowing how central to everything idolatry is, it ought to amaze us that Paul spends as many words as he does talking about sins in between brothers and sisters in the Lord and how we act to one another. It tells us something about the importance of those things and what's more, I think, I think our proclivity toward those things. When he looks at the Galatians, he says, these are the real problems for you guys. These are the things that are going to eat you alive. Listen to what he says. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He, he can't even finish the list. He just, etc., etc., etc. You know what they are. People who are ruled by the flesh are angry, they're prideful, they're ungrateful for the good things they have. They seek to undermine actual authority, whether it's the authority of Scripture or the authority that Scripture grants to people in the church. They desire to, to, to stir up trouble. Listen, these, these things are so natural for us. They're so easy for us because they just they kind of flow out of who we are. It's a natural demonstration of the flesh, and they're not nearly as evident as idolatry sometimes, and they're not nearly as evident as sexual sins. And we put up with it. Listen, these are not just small things that we should avoid. Paul here is using the strongest possible language. If you are the kind of person who stirs up dissent in a church, if you are the kind of person who seeks to bring rivalries and dissensions into a church, who undermines biblical authority or undermines the biblical authority that God gives to people in the church, if you are the kind of person who is angry and jealous all the time, you need to check yourself to see if you are actually being led by the Spirit or not. You can be that kind of person and honestly seek to crucify that. And honestly seek through repentance to end that. These are not unforgivable sins. But if you have those things and you feel yourself even now justifying them, you had better be careful. Matthew chapter 7. We get what is likely, likely the hardest thing that we read in the Sermon on the Mount. Given American Christianity, this is the one verse that I think most Baptists need to focus on. And maybe not the one, but one of the ones. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So that's not, that's not a legalistic pastor. You want to call Jesus a legalist? Go ahead. See ya. He says, if you do not do the will of my Father in heaven, if you were, if you were going to say, Lord, Lord, and you were going to turn around and live a life of debauchery, I don't know you. You have no share in my kingdom. There is no inheritance for you. I don't care how many aisles you've walked. I don't care how many times you've said it. I don't care how many times Lord, Lord has come out and you've sat there and you've praised me. If you continue to refuse to repent of your sin, to put it behind you and to crucify your flesh, you have no part with me. He declares to them in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Crucify the flesh, friends. Lastly, we ought to then cultivate the fruit. There's two oddities about the beginning of this text. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, there's two things that are weird. One, it's very odd that he doesn't use the parallelism that we would expect him to use here. He talked about the works of the flesh, but he doesn't say the work of the Spirit is this. He doesn't say the work of the Spirit is giving alms. The work of the Spirit is praying. The work of the Spirit is doing X, Y, Z. The work of the Spirit is helping old ladies across the street. The work of the Spirit is giving money to missionaries. The work of the Spirit is going out and doing missions. The work of the Spirit is making sure that you evangelize as many people as you can. The work of the Spirit is fasting. The work of the Spirit is anything that you want to put in there. Paul doesn't say that. Instead, he says the fruit of the Spirit. We would expect works, but we get fruit. My guess is that he provides us with fruit so that we can talk about the kind of people we are supposed to be instead of simply having a checklist of things that we are to do. Because you know what we would do? With hard hearts, we would simply do the things on the checklist and sit back and comfortably say that we're okay. Say, well, I give 10% and I, I evangelize all the time. I'm supposed to evangelize four times a week. According to Paul, I did that. We're good. But Paul says, no, you're not going to do that. These are fruit that that are characteristics. It's not a checklist, but they're characteristics that you are to have in your life. And he says that they are, they're singular, right? Now, language doesn't always work this way. So when my wife goes to the store and she comes home, I don't say, did you buy some fruits? I don't, Canadian, it sounds kind of Canadian for some reason. I don't know why that is, but, but I don't say that, right? I would say fruit, and I don't just mean like, did she buy my apple for the week, right? I mean, like all of the fruit, but it is a bit odd here. I think that what it means is this. Love is the fruit. Love is the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The remaining eight characteristics are literally characteristics of love. It is is what love looks like. Paul is explaining what love is. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I I gain nothing. Listen in verse 4 and mark how many of these characteristics come up in this passage. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Second Colossians 3, Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All of these are simply characteristics of love. So what does it mean? The fruit of the Spirit is love. You are to be a person who is marked by love, and that means you are a person who is marked by joy. You're marked by joy. There's some people in this world who are pessimists, and I'm geared this way, so I'm speaking to myself, who are cup half empty type people, right? And we can grumble and we can complain about the circumstances we're in and we can bemoan the circumstances we're in, but listen, do you realize how gracious God has been to you? I talked to my father-in-law just this week and he was reminded by watching a movie of how horrible dentistry was in the 1800s. Imagine having a mouth that is filled with pain in the 1800s. I guarantee you it's getting a lot worse before it gets better. Think of, think, of, think of the hygiene in the 1800s. Go back and read history books that actually focus on the hygiene in the 1900s. And that leaky pipe you have in your basement, you will be very glad that you have to fix it because you've got running water in your house, which means the waste goes away from it. You can face cancer. You can face anything that God would throw at you, realizing what, not only the common grace that he has given to mankind, that there are now medicines that can deal with these things better than before, but what's more than that, knowing that he has provided Jesus Christ for you. What can he possibly put in your path that should not be met with joy? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when God gives you trials of many kinds. Peace. Love is peace. Don't be anxious about the future. Friends, God is sovereign. He's in control. There's no reason for you to be upset and unstable by what's going to happen in the future. You can't control anything that happens in the future. Jesus says, what does any one of you add to an hour of his life? You can't, you can't notch another month, another week, another day, another hour to your life by being anxious about what's going to happen in the future. God is in control. Jesus, at the end of Matthew 6, says, Don't be anxious, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So is it you're worried about it because God isn't going to help you with what you need to have? And Jesus says, Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow is anxious enough for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God is still God over everything that's going to happen in the future and all those bad things that you might worry about. Have peace about them, for God is doing all that you need to work out those things. Love is patience. Patience is the ability to wait on God, allowing for his good timing to be found. Don't rush God. God knows what he's doing. You don't have to be impatient when it comes to the dealings of God. If you're not growing or a friend's not growing or people in your church aren't growing the way you would like them to, be patient. Let God do his work. He's, his timing is perfect. Yours is rancid. Even about sin in your own life. Patience is allowing God's grace to do its own work in its own time. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, about a thorn in the flesh. Paul doesn't explain what that thorn is, but he's got something that is so irritable to him that he has fasted and prayed three times. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul himself is begging God. This is after Paul has already declared. He's already been in the very presence of God. He's been to the third heavens. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, God gives you what you need. Be patient with him. His grace is sufficient for you in all aspects of your life. Kindness. Love is kindness. Love is never to be characterized by harshness. We have harsh words to say to people, but nevertheless, we ought to be kind to one another. This is mixed with generosity or goodness. Together with kindness, it indicates that our love is not an internal thing. Okay? Love, love is not simply a feeling or an emotion, but it's actually acted out before people. You are to be kind to them. Anyone who starts a sentence by saying, as, as I've heard so many people do, well, I'm sorry, but, right? The next words that come out of their mouths are always harsh. You, if you have to preemptively apologize for something that's going to come out of your mouth, you ought not speak it, probably because it's harsh and uncharacteristically unloving. Same thing when we talk about people who say things like, well, he just didn't know how to show love. That's, that's, that's an excuse. If you don't know how to demonstrate love, friend, go learn. Read scripture. Kindness and generosity and goodness are ways to show love to people. Faithfulness. Yes, you are to be faithful to God, but you are also to be faithful to one another. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you speak, let that be so. As much as God speaks and creation comes into existence, he speaks and truth appears. He speaks and it forms itself out of his own very words. So we ought to mimic that as much as we can by what we say. When we say, I will do it, let it be so. When you tell somebody you will be there, be there. When you tell them no, don't go back on that. When you tell them yes, do everything you can in your world to make that yes come true. Be faithful to your word and be faithful to the people that you know. Gentleness. Gentleness is nothing more than not needing to demonstrate your strength the way the world wants you to demonstrate it. Jesus called them and said to them in Mark 10, You know that those who are considered rulers and the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so with you. Whoever is great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you should be slave of all. Jesus demonstrates this in John 13 when he washes the feet of the disciples. That is something that slaves weren't even required to do. You've got to be the lowest of the low to do that. And Jesus says, do you know what I've just done for you? So you are to do. I am your teacher and your Lord. If I washed your feet, you are to go wash others' feet as well. A Greek lexicon called, uh, was written by a man named Freiburg. It's just a beautiful sentence. It's, this word means it's strength that accommodates itself to another's weakness. Don't use your strength to bemoan everyone else. You, you pray a lot. Good for you. Don't use your prayer life to beat down on others who aren't that prayerful. You give a lot. That's great. Praise God. Don't use that to beat down on everyone else and to think yourself superior to everyone else who doesn't pray and who doesn't give. And finally, self-control. Probably the most important one here. It means that you actually have control over what you are doing with yourself. It means that you are not guided and directed by the flesh, but you have control over it, and you direct yourself into the paths of the Spirit by reading the Word of God and living out the Word of God. You are under control. James says that we stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. For every kind of beast of bird, of reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
Listen, self-control starts with what you say and how you say it. If you can control that, you can control every aspect of your life. Self-control means that you are being led by the Spirit and you're not being led by the flesh. Listen, our father was a farmer from the beginning. He made an earth and then he made a garden. And he did something unbelievable in that garden. He raised up from the dust man. Just the same way we get tomatoes up from the dust and we get weeds up from the dust. But he was better than that. He is able to form man from the dust. He was a gardener from the beginning. And so he wants to cultivate fruit among his people. He looked at Israel, his people, and he saw no fruit. Go read Isaiah 5. He planted a vineyard. He did everything that he possibly could to make that vineyard perfect and whole. And instead of getting good grapes, he got wild, worthless grapes out of it. And Jesus comes around and he says this, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, he, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God wants you to bear fruit. And if you don't, Jesus in John says exactly what Paul does here. If you do not cultivate in your life through the work of the Spirit and the motivation of the Spirit and the help and the aid of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, friend, you need to repent. I beg of you, do not sit there and think that you're okay. You're not okay. But God is able and willing to forgive you. Christ is immensely gentle. Something that I skipped over. His gentleness is seen. In the fact that he is unwilling to break even a broken reed. Smoldering wick, he, he won't quench, he won't put out. Listen, friend, if you feel like you can, you can stand in your sin, I'm telling you, you can't. He will destroy you. But if you come to him, no matter how weak and how frail and how broken, he will not break you. Friend, if you are a Christian, continue to crucify the flesh. Continue to live in the leading of the Spirit, multiplying and making the fruit of your life grow ever more full and true and good. This is what the Spirit wants from you and what the Spirit helps and aids you in. Bear much fruit and show yourselves to be branches of Christ himself. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the work of Jesus Christ. He is our life. He is our strength and our song. He is everything to us. We have no good thing outside of him. We have no ability to make ourselves right before you. We have no ability to cultivate anything in ourselves if it were not for the Spirit of God, not only revealing to us what we should do, but empowering us to do those things. It is because your Spirit dwells in us that we are able to do these things. And Father, I pray that as you have begun a good work in so many people here, that you will not leave it until it's brought to the day of completion. It's completed in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we don't do this on our own. I pray that those who are here who have heard your word, as we have read from Isaiah and we've read from John, that their eyes might be opened 
their ears might be unstopped, that they might hear the word of God speaking to them, calling them to repentance, that they might know your salvation in Jesus Christ. And for all the others who are here who know that salvation, Father, may we press on all the more, seeking to increase in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, so that in all things we might look like a Jesus who saved us and redeemed us from a lost and dying world. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.